and this is the art of less doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast, episode 168. Today, I have my interview with Steve J. Martin, who has become a friend of mine. We shared uh, a week together. We were in Europe on the Growth Summit talks for Forbes, and I got to know each other really well and spent a bunch of time learning from each other, and he's just a really, really cool guy. And this interview was recorded in a hotel room in Barcelona. So uh, if the audio quality is not up to normal snuff, I apologize, but I know that it's better than the one that I did on the last episode with Ilko because that one was done in a restaurant, but hopefully the content will outshine the quality. So today uh, I'm solo and I just want to share some links with you. The first one is called Timogram and allows you to schedule your post to Instagram from any device. So this is not a new concept, but it is relatively new thing in Instagram because I think their their API was not allowing this kind of thing before. But now you can schedule an entire week of social media posts for Instagram. And you could do this with Buffer, which has proved to be really, really helpful because as people will notice, there are times that most of their followers are actually looking at their feed and you can be much more effective with your messaging if you deliver it at a certain time. So this allows you to finally schedule your Instagram posts. So that's Timogram. Uh, the next one is called Retrospect, and this is similar in idea to the uh, to like I done this, but basically it's asking how was your work week. So it takes you through five questions: is how much did you enjoy work this week? How well did you manage to work with your team? How productive have you been this week? How much do you feel like you've learned? And how did you handle stress? You fill that out, and it gives you a score, and you can just do that every week, basically. And you can keep track of it and you can save your scores and basically figure out what days you're doing better and what weeks you're doing better and your average score. And I think that it's actually really, really useful. So retrospect. Uh, The next one, this is an article on Ben Greenfield Fitness, actually. So over at Ben's website. And it's uh, 19 of my go-to foods for stocking a healthy pantry. And I don't want to, I'm not going to give you all of them. You should go over and read the article because it's a really good one. But there, there were a few in here that, there were a few that were obvious and there were a few that were that were less obvious you know like the obvious ones to me are the the pastured eggs and avocados like that's that's like a meal in itself honestly if you get that but uh, there are some other ones like that that ben obviously keeps on hand and uh, uh, the, one of them would be actually fermented soy so we're talking about like soy sauce and this was an interesting one i thought because i, I keep it in my pantry as well but a lot of health people and and uh, paleo people and are really against soy of any kind. But the truth is, is that traditionally fermented soybeans actually can, can be something that's very helpful and provide with some really good flavoring. So that was one that I, that I, I saw in there that I really liked. He keeps chia seeds, which is not an odd one, but it's great. Chia seeds are awesome. You can put them in your smoothie. You can put them on top of yogurt. They add a little bit of crunch. They add some really good fiber and they actually are packed with omega-3 fatty acids. So chia seeds are awesome. Uh, as far as grains, he actually had in here, he had sushi rice and then quinoa, amaranth and millet, which is great. So you can actually do a lot with that stuff. And then uh, there was one more that I really liked in here. I'm just trying to get to it. Uh, oh, yeah. Turmeric. 
So uh, turmeric is just a, it's a great spice. Uh, the active ingredient in turmeric is curcumin, which is what makes it yellow. And it's a, incredible. It's actually part of the ginger family and it's a really, really good anti-inflammatory. So you can put turmeric in baked goods. You can put it in tea. You can actually make a tea with it. You can put it in soups. So it's just a really, really good sort of anti-inflammatory and flavorful spice to have in your pantry. But go over and check out the whole article over there and you can get a really good sort of way to, to create a base for your, for your pantry. So the next one's called uh, handwriting.io. Uh, and this is an interesting take on this, but basically it is a, a programming API that provides digital handwriting. So this is real handwriting, but there's no pen and no robots. It's all software-based. And what's really cool, and you can go and test it out, it actually will let you, uh, it, it, it's unique. So like not all the, not all the A's look the same. The, it, you know, the same letter will look different each time it's written. It's a, it's a completely unique looking handwriting. So it's not even like you write it down and they turn that into a font or they've created some really great font from somebody else's handwriting. It's actual original digital script handwriting. Pretty cool. So you can actually use it to send handwritten notes as an email, basically, or you can you can just put handwriting into other like signing a website or writing a letter online it has a more personal feel if it's actually written with handwriting. That's pretty cool, too. Uh, the next one is a service called Council. And this is very, very similar to 23andMe. It's a genetic screening testing, but it's mostly aimed at people who are trying to get pregnant, basically. So they have a family prep screen, uh, an informed pregnancy screen that can basically provide information about 100 illnesses that you might be passing on genetically. And as I've shared before, Anna and I had to deal with this when we had our first child, Benjamin, where we found out well, so 23andMe basically said that I was not a carrier of cystic fibrosis. And then we had a more extensive test done. And it turned out that I was actually. And there was a mutation that 23andMe was not looking for, which was kind of disconcerting. But this council service is specifically aimed at people who are trying to get pregnant. And so, or who are pregnant or looking for things that might be passed on to their child. So if you're interested or you're in that boat, that is definitely something that I would recommend checking out because it is interesting knowledge i would caution you however that you know a lot of genetic tests or a lot of genetic predispositions are things that you really can't do anything about so it may end up creating more stress than not and that's something that you have to decide with yourself how you're going to feel with that information uh, okay so the next one is called inno reader and this is this is really cool so i use feedly and i've used feedly for a long time to read multiple blog posts every day i, I process about a thousand blog posts per day but and, and feedly is great and there's a lot of ifttt uh, plugins with it and whatnot but this is sort of like the power user version the only thing is it doesn't have automation stuff as far as like ifttt plugins or zapier plugins but it does allow you to do a lot of things like automatically tagging and organizing articles you can create rules for articles. So if you if you think about like filters for Gmail, this is the version of it for feed reading. So that's InnoReader. I thought that was really cool. It's actually can be a really big time saver. Uh, there's a great article over at Barking Up the Wrong Tree, my favorite website, as many of you know, which is called uh, It's Four New Parenting Tips That Will Make Your Kids Awesome. So the four tips are work on yourself, create autonomy, communicate, and community. And the, the I'm just going to tell you the first one, which is basically that if you want happy kids, then you have to make sure that you're keeping yourself happy. So happy parents make happy kids and parental depression can cause child behavioral problems. So basically they're saying, you know, work on yourself in order to help make kids happier. And if you think about 
being in an airplane and the oxygen mask coming down, they say, put it on yourself first and then put it on the child next to you. It's kind of a very simplified way of looking at it. You know, you have to live the model that you want to be. And, and that's, I know that is way, way harder to actually do than it is to say in many cases. And it's really hard to, to drive without getting road rage and to not have an argument with your spouse that ends without any resolution. But we can certainly strive for that. So uh, the next one is called, this is an article over a tech crunch. It's the best conditions for building a unicorn. <laughs> and uh, this is in terms of companies like startups like uh, Uber, Airbnb, that kind of thing. And it's, it's looking at the best conditions for creating unicorns. Now, this doesn't, this isn't one of those things where it's like, okay, you, you follow this, you know, by the book and you're automatically going to create some amazing revenue growth story. And that's going to be that, but it it is a good article. And it talks about from a, from a sort of overall standpoint, what those scenarios are. And, and I'm not going to go into them. It's really, you have to read the article because it's not like I can just pull out one thing for you. But if you look at something like a, uh, like one of Mal- Malcolm Gladwell's books, like Tipping Point, or I think it was Tipping Point, or, uh, oh, no, it's probably The Outliers, actually, where he looks at some of the, the richest people in history, including the Rockefellers, or John D. Rockefeller specifically. There are a bunch of people in that, like, 10-year period that were born, that were born in the same 10-year period, basically, that became, like, the, the six of the top 10 richest people of all time. And some of that just had to do with good timing, honestly. Obviously, that's not all there is to it, but sometimes that's part of it. And so there's macro things that affect this stuff as well. But again, if you're in the startup world, it's definitely worth a read. I don't usually quote or I don't usually put things in the show notes that are from TechCrunch. But this one is uh, is definitely worth checking out. Uh, and then there's an article over at 20, uh, 99U. So this one is about the four types of productivity styles. And the next one I thought was really good. I, I, I actually generally like the stuff that they write over at 99U. Um, and this one is talking about the four t- styles. So the first one is the prioritizer. Okay, so the prioritizer is the guy or gal who will always defer to logic, analytical, fact-based, critical, and realistic thinking. So that's actually, that's kind of like me, I would say, in some ways. And what I like about this article is that it, it shows how that person fits into a team really well, and also some of the tools that would work very well for that person. So the next person is the planner. Uh, the, the, the third is the arranger. And the fourth is the visualizer. I like the visualizer a lot. The visualizer prefers holistic, intuitive, integrating, and synthesizing thinking. So they can contribute to a team as far as showing innovation, creative problem solving, and their ability to envision the future. And the tools that they recommend for this person are things like Life Tick, which is a, a, a dream. It's like a, a bucket list kind of tool. Uh, mind mapping software, a tool that blocks ads so that they can speed up download time so they're not being sort of bombarded with that information. And then the Zen Pen, which is a, a tool that creates a minimalist writing zone. So I, this is just a really cool article. I like the way that it breaks down the different styles and not only does that, but also provides tools that can help those people leverage their strengths. So the last thing I want to mention is called the Breathometer. And this is, this is kind of funny. Um, so this is the Breathometer Mint, which is for breath quality and hydration. This is a quantified self device that will basically quantify your oral health by testing your breath quality and your level of hydration. Now, the breath quality one, I'm not so that's not so interesting to me. I mean, if you brush your teeth regularly and you you don't, I guess, let food ferment in your mouth or your your gut, then your breath should be okay. Of course, unless you're dealing with some sort of uh, bacterial overgrowth or some other issue. But 
uh, the one that the, for measuring hydration, actually, that is really cool because a lot of times you may feel like you're hungry and it's actually thirst uh, or you just may not have some good sense of what your hydration levels are. So this will actually measure how bad your breath is and what your hydration level is. And it's just a device you blow into it and that's it. I think it's really cool. So there you go. That's the links for this episode. Please enjoy the interview with Steve Martin. You have to check out his book, his newest book, which is The, uh, the Big Small. And we'll see you next week. The Less Doing Podcast pulls together the top experts in the industry to help you optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life so you can start doing the things you really want to do again. What would you do if you could only work an hour a day? Would you crumble or would you thrive? When I was sick with Crohn's disease, I was faced with that reality because there were days when I literally couldn't eke out more than an hour of work a day. And I had to figure out ways to not only get everything done, but get more done than I was doing before. And that is how Less Doing was born. Less Doing is about you. It's the easiest way to learn and implement a huge amount of productivity tips into your life in a short amount of time. Whether you're a crazy busy business owner, a tired executive in a large company, or a stressed out soccer mom, we've brought it all together for you to help you overcome the overwhelm in your life. For the latest how-tos and actual tips on becoming more productive, sign up for my newsletter over at lessdoing.com. But I want to offer you all something more. As listeners of this podcast, I want to give you the opportunity to get on the phone with one of my Less Doing certified coaches. I've trained each one of them myself, and they really know what they're doing. The first call is completely free, and you will get some real advice and tips on how you can be more productive in your life and get back to making things easier again. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the interview. So now I'm speaking with Steve Martin, who is a persuasion scientist and co-author of Small Big, uh, and an expert in influence. So um, I, I don't know if I actually wanted to do this interview, but we're here, and uh, I've, I've hit record, we're doing it. So I've been influenced to do this somehow. So Steve, thank you very much. Well. Glad to be doing this already. <laughs> uh, and I should point out that we are in person. We're sitting here in a hotel room in Barcelona. We've just come on a, not the most pleasant flight I think we've ever had uh, from Amsterdam. Uh, the flight, we were almost ready to land, and then we ended up doing a go-around, which is not fun in a commercial airline. Uh, but we made it. We're here. We're speaking for the, the Forbes Growth Summit tomorrow here in Barcelona. And uh, we've, we've, uh, we've just gotten some nice time together, so I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to interview you. So, how did you get started in the path to persuasion science? The answer is by accident. Mm -hmm. I spent uh, maybe eight, eight and a half years in my early career working for a big healthcare company. I worked in sales, I worked in marketing, I had an opportunity to work in some of the commercial side of the business, do some training, do some learning development, and I ended up uh, primarily responsible for the skills of our sales teams. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were kind of interested in how we measure their skills, particularly their influence. You know, uh, what was interesting about the business was that there wasn't a transaction. It wasn't like, you know, someone would give us a check or a credit card and we'd give them some medicines and things. You know, mm -hmm. was, you know a big part of the job was influence, lobbying, you know, dealing with stakeholders, getting policymakers to make decisions and things. I was interested in how we might measure that. Sure. Uh, and uh, I'd heard of this guy, Robert Cialdini, who's become a 
very close friend and colleague over the 16 or so years we've been working together, who was studying exactly that. He was measuring persuasion and studying successful persuasion. And uh, his work intrigued me. I thought originally that we might work together in my role in the corporate setting, but we ended up working and partnering together and we've been doing that for some 16 years now. So yeah, yeah. primarily by accident. Uh, I was in a good place at the right time. Right, and, that, and that's, that's, that's how so many great stories begin actually. So uh, the, the first question, I'm actually gonna get to a bigger question first, which is there's, there's, there's gotta be people, I'm sure, I know there's plenty of people who want to use better influence for lesser purposes, hmm. I'm sure. And you've probably been approached by people for those purposes as well. Right. And so, you know, obviously we're not affecting people's free will, but when you're influencing someone and it's for a positive reason, which we're going to get into some of those examples, that's great. But I feel like influence itself could be seen as something that has like a negative connotation to it. Yeah. Because you're trying to get somebody to do something that they might not otherwise do. Absolutely. Right. I, and I agree. Yeah. I agree. And that is the challenge with a subject like influence and persuasion. There is no neutrality. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't not influence. You know, doing nothing is a form of influence and persuasion. Uh, so the only real thing that one can do is to advocate that you use this set of technologies, this set of principles, in a, a morally acceptable, ethical, responsible way. Um, and actually, there's some really interesting research that shows that if you do that, then people actually want to be influenced by you. Mm -hmm. you, know, um, you know, if you are a straight shooter, if you are largely honest and, and ethical about things, you know, people do want to be persuaded as to why you've got a good case to make. Um, because these principles are efficient ways to come to good decisions in, you know, a crazy information overloaded world. They allow us essentially to do what you advocate, which is to do less. Well, and, and make, certainly make less decisions, right? Because yeah. if you are being influenced by somebody who you've put faith in and you trust, then Sure, it makes it a lot easier. You can shortcut that responsibility. And I and I do that myself. I mean, when it comes to business decisions and things, there are definitely people who I trust that know more that I know know more than I do. And I'm very happy for them to, you know, sway me one way or another. In fact, I mean I mean a lot of people I'm sure do this, but I've certainly been in situations where I've said to somebody, you know, I'm there, I just just tell me a reason. You know, just like I just need the the, the personal justification, I guess, that you can provide me. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And for those people that don't play by the rule, that use these in dishonest, unethical, manipulative manners, okay, well, it may be the case that we get tricked by them. Mm -hmm. Okay. But again, the evidence suggests that we only need to get tricked once. Um, right. And our response to being manipulated isn't directed at the tactic that was used it was actually, it's directed at the tactician, the person that used it. So there are many good reasons why you wouldn't want to use these in you know, morally questionable ways um, because of the short-term nature of their effect. Sure. Uh, you know, you screw someone over, that pretty much ensures that uh, no one will ever come to you again. Um, and so, you know, if you're in a business or a, you know, a situation where primarily you are thriving on not just influencing people today, but influencing people continually in the longer term, really the, the ethical approach is really the only way. Sure. That, no, that makes total sense. Uh, however, and, and there was an example you gave in your talk that made me think of this that I thought was so so interesting, that 
even when trying to use it for positive things, if you misuse it by accident even, you can cause somebody to do a behavior that is a poor one. And the one I'm thinking of is the, the national parks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, such is our reliance on the behavior of others for us to be able to kind of inform us of what the right thing to do is, right. is that if we see evidence that you know lots of other people are behaving, even in ways that are uh, not helpful, uh, are undermining to a business or undermining to the community, then we can actually, um, you know, follow those those behaviours. And yeah, the national parks example is a really good one. You know, you, you know, policymakers there thought, well, you know, if we point out to visitors how many past visitors have been stealing, then they'll kind of figure out that you know, inherently in our message, we're trying to say, please don't do it because it's a bad thing. Right. But in, instead, what happened was, you know, people would come onto the park, they'd read the sign and they think, well, you know, we'd better get ours quick then before it all runs out. Yeah. So, you know, drawing attention to that regrettably frequent uh, but undesirable behavior um, simply served the purpose of increasing it further. Well, so you know the thing about uh, people, what was it, the uh, one of the, the space... I think it was a space, a satellite rather, that had exploded and it exploded over a particular area in a lot of the shrap or the the rubble and the shrapnel came down in America and they were warning people very strongly not to pick up those pieces, not to get them. And within hours they were on eBay. And yeah. it was really a big deal. Um, and, and and I I remember I forgot who I, who the scientist was or somebody came on, they just said that they had gone about it the total, totally the wrong way about trying to get people and dissuading them from doing that and actually entice them further. Indeed, indeed. Well, that speaks to a principle uh, that is universal in its ability to you know, shape our behavior. Yeah. Uh, we want things, uh, we want more rather, of the things that we can have less of. Right. So if there's something unique, something distinct, you know, a one-time only offer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that seems to me to be a situation which you know, one would hope would only ever be a one-time only offer. Um, People grab it with both hands, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, a, a, a less um, disastrous uh, but equally compelling example of that was the the Concorde. You know, they um, they announced back in two thousand and three that uh, they'd no longer be flying it from London to New York, primarily because it was uneconomical to yeah, run. Yeah. And the very next day, you couldn't get a seat on this plane for level money. You know, nothing changes about it. It doesn't fly any faster. The service doesn't get any better. Price certainly didn't come down. But in that context of scarcity, it's less available. It you know confers a value that wasn't there before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so and, and even in that regard, it's funny. So when I was at the airport in Amsterdam waiting for our flight or for my flight to Romania, yes, we were in Romania just a couple of days ago. <laughs> um, I got to my gate, and the gate next to me they were making announcements and the woman on the announcement said, uh, passenger Oppenheimer or something, uh, you are, or, you are holding up the plane. We will be boarding immediately. And if you don't show up at the gate, we will offload your bags. 25 minutes later, she had said that message about seven more times. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously it wasn't working in that context, but it made me think of that too. It was like, obviously that that's, that's, it's not working. So stop. Um, so one of the, the also really interesting things that I took from your talk was the idea about the motivation to, to be similar to others, but how specific you can get. And, you know, and I don't need you to recount all of them necessarily, but the, 
the one about the taxes where if you told them there are people like you or people in your zip code and then people in your town, yeah. um, or as we both experienced on this trip, the, and I'm sure many people have experienced in hotels, the thing about uh, the, the, the people in this room have reused their towels, yeah. you know, and how that alignment seems to make us just behave in a way that you don't even think about it, that it becomes unconscious. Well, I do. I mean, and I think that's the inherent um, value of those kind of messages is that they, they speak to a part of our brain that allows us to make decisions without really thinking that hard about them. You know, and typically, you know, following what others like us in a similar position have done is an efficient, accurate decision mm-hmm. allows us to gain their approval oftentimes in those instances um, and you know, if there's one thing that is helpful to us in this crazy information overloaded world, it's as you said a few moments ago, uh, uh, shortcuts to not having to make so many decisions, or shortcuts to you know, just making a good, largely accurate one. And uh, yeah, so you know, pointing out that many other people are behaving in a similar way is useful. Uh, companies and businesses have been using that for years in terms of testimonials, um, but this additional insight that we follow those groups that are most similar to us even if that similarity is that we've stayed in the same hotel room or you know we live in the same zip code or in a recent actually i've seen some recent studies a natural field experiment done on airplanes that found that you know people were significantly more likely to buy from the duty-free cart if they saw that someone in a similar similar to them in the same row on the airline on the same airplane did it as well um, such is the kind of, uh, you know, incredible strength of the, the, the behavior, the pulling power of the behavior of others. Incredible. Well, and, and what I want to point out to people is that you said the most similar. So you can find something that is similar, but there are degrees of similarity. And the closer you can get, obviously, the, the better you're going to be off. So whether you're a marketer or, or you're trying to influence somebody in some other way, you can test these things. Obviously, you can test these things. But getting as close as possible. And that doesn't mean that they look like you necessarily or that they they have the same income as you. It, it could, but it could just mean a situational. It could be, similarity. yeah. It could be, yeah, uh, whose circumstances match yours, whose location matches yours, whose business well, experience it, it's matches It's the, uh, yours. you know, I'd like to buy the world of Coke yeah. kind of thing with the people at the airport, you know, who are delayed and getting together over a Coca-Cola and that bonds them. Exactly right, exactly right. And, and you know, in much the same way as the, uh, the people that were trying to reduce visitor theft in the, in the park in Arizona uh, made a mistake. Yeah. I see businesses making that mistake as well. They, they use those testimonials that they're the proudest of. Right. You know, look at this great work we did with IBM or this fantastic project we did with Apple or this wonderful program and... Uh, that we rolled out with Google or whatever the case may be. They're really proud of it, rightly so as well. But if they start to kind of hawk that testimonial to others who aren't in IBM's or Apple's or Google's position, it loses, it's dissimilar, it disengages. Um, so you do see that mistake made oftentimes. So the advice always is, you know, use testimonials, absolutely. But try to use those testimonials that most closely match the person or the group you're trying to influence at that moment in time. Uh, not just the one that kind of makes you feel good about yourself because you did a good job. 
Sure, and, and, and that's a great point too because especially when you're talking to marketers who are using Facebook ads where you can really very specifically target. You know, I, I'm targeting women who live in this zip code in New Jersey and make over $100,000 and have no kids. You know, like you can get that specific. And so then if, you, if that person goes to a page and they see a testimonial from a consultant at Deloitte or, or McKinsey, they're probably not going to relate. So it, it's, I mean, it's an excellent point. Now, so for you, with all of your knowledge in this, do you feel like that helps you or hurts you when it comes to you being influenced? Does it help you be more efficient or are you more skeptical? Well, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that I would be more efficient and I am alert to these effects. Um, the reality, of course, is somewhat different. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I am uh, as likely to be affected by these universal principles of influence, these contexts, uh, as anyone else. Um, and that, I think, is where their power lies, because yeah. they, 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 they largely operate on an unconscious level, they're automatic, they're good rules of thumb that allow us to make decisions without really thinking about making decisions. And so for that reason, they're invisible to us, they kind of fly under the radar. Well, I, I actually think that that's kind of comforting, you know, because uh, I feel like that's something that you can deal with in any field. And in, in my own, with productivity, I'm constantly... And I tell, well, every time I give a talk, most times I give a talk, I tell people that I believe that 95% of the things that they, that they do can be done by another person or another thing. And I say, but don't worry, that applies to me too. And it's a constant thing. And that's not changing. Just because I, just because you perceive that I may be more efficient than you, it's, it doesn't mean that relatively speaking, or in an absolute term, that I am extremely efficient because it's all relative. So that's actually very nice to know that even though you learn all this stuff and if people read your book and they learn about this stuff, that it's, it's not necessarily going to hurt or help them in their own actions, but it could help the way that they they work with others. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and that's that's fascinating. So, uh, what what is one of the the next projects that you're working on that you're excited about? Well, um, I can't say too much because no. I can't name names, but there is a transport system mm -hmm. in uh, a country in Europe, uh, and uh, they are experiencing some. Uh, issues with uh, folks that will uh, jump on the, the train system and, and not buy a ticket. Sure. And um, it's only a small number of people, but as we know, small numbers of people, if they do it often enough, can make big, big differences. Yes. So uh, we are about to embark on a series of uh, investigation uh, programs and then some studies to look at, you know, how we can use some of these principles of influence and persuasion to perhaps... Uh, you know, persuade a few people to a few more people to kind of do the right thing and, and buy a buy a ticket. Um, it's one of those. I, I like these kind of situations yeah. because um, everyone wins. You know, it's it's good for the transport system. It's good it's for the other tangible. paying public, and it's very tangible, very yeah. measurable. Um, you know, I like that idea of you know here's a small change that you know a, an insight from behavioral science has uh, provided to us. Uh, and here's the impact that it actually has when you um, implement it in a you know a, a consistent way. I, I, I love that. Um, you know, I, I think it's been attributed to, to a number of people. There's that old adage, isn't it? That you know, I know that a lot of my marketing spend is actually wasted. I don't know so, just which share. Um, and we've gotten pretty good now at actually understanding how these small tweaks do lead to you know um, demonstrable effects so you know we can start to say you know yeah actually when i did that it made this difference mm -hmm. um and that's compelling i think you know if you're you know 
selling a service or a product to uh, to someone who's keen yeah. on the ROI. And, and it is, speaking of ROI, some of these things you suggest are costless. Yeah, basically. absolutely. Absolutely. Adding a sentence to a letter, right. costless. Um, changing the words on a poster from the number of people that don't show up to a health appointment to the number of people that do, costless. You know, changing the cards in a hotel bathroom, pretty much costless. Yeah, sure. But the upsides are, can be millions and millions and millions of dollars. So when, when you hypothesize these tests, and unlike the one for this, this transportation system, are there any, uh, is there any sort of like pre-testing that you go through before you unleash it on the public, you know, to, to try to shoot? I mean, like how many iterations of, do you go through? Or is it just like, I think this is a big idea, let's try it. Yeah. I mean, it, could be, it could be either of those options, yeah. actually. Oftentimes, um, well, actually, we need to be really upfront and honest here about uh, both the upsides of behavioral science and some of the limitations. Mm-hmm. So one, some of the limitations are, you know, you can think about these uh, universal principles and how they might generate and spark ideas that you can test. But it's oftentimes the case that those ideas that they spark or inform you to do are just not possible. Um, you know, the system is in place, the culture isn't in place, um, it would, you know, lead to an unintended consequence somewhere down the line. Right. So th- there is a filtering process. So it's, it's not this idea that there's a set of tools here and any one of them will work. So we've got to go through that process first. Yeah. And then I think of those legitimate ideas that, you know, stay on the table, uh, they largely fall into two camps. One is, look, this is self-evidently such a good idea uh, we just just may as well do it. Right. You know, it's it's kind of that what we're doing at the moment is having the complete uh, reverse effect that we're wanting to you know actualize here. So let's just just do this. And then there's some others that will be um, interesting um, conceptually, but the, we may not actually find in the literature any evidence that they've worked in the past. Uh, or there's any robust evidence that they should work, and in that instance, really the only option you've got is to is to test, and you can you can right. do a field experiment. So you do it on a small scale. Businesses do it in the context of pilot schemes, these kind of things. You do it on a small scale in a relatively discrete part of the business. You know, so in this particular transport system, we'll likely pick you know um, certain trains or buses at a certain time of day on a certain line, mm-hmm. test it there. Um, you know. Do the analysis, look for the impact, and then and then make the recommendation to scale out. That's typically how you go about it. Well, and the other thing I, I was I would imagine is unlike um, certainly in a lot of the medical sciences and in uh, sociology and, and probably some economic studies too, you can see results fairly quickly. I would imagine some of this stuff. Yeah, particularly in these situations where you've got you know large numbers of homogenous transactions taking place. Right. You know the. the there's not that much variability. There's you know two or three types of transactions. And you don't have to look at side effects either. Yeah, and you don't get side effects either. That's 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 right. Well, you can in some instances, but it's it's unlikely. So, yeah, you know if, if if there's you know a large enough number of transactions that take place in a short period of time, and some of these effect sizes are actually quite large. So you don't actually need to test it for that long to show actually this is we're onto something here. Uh huh. So uh, this may be putting you on the spot a little bit, but there are definitely a lot of people who listen to this podcast who have uh, online businesses, and one of the things that most online businesses do is they try to collect email addresses from people, you know, opt-in boxes, and there's all sorts of ways you can test those kinds of things. But in your uh, experience, has there been sort of one or two things that you've found that makes that very effective, that makes somebody want to give their email address to you, for example? Well, you know, one of the things I was... You, <laughs> I am on the spot here, and, but I, let's go with this. So... The, 
His, his you may one, not know. Maybe you just think. Well, no. Well, here's an idea, and I don't know about yeah. this. But here's an idea that you know, there's a there's a principle of influence that is uh, fundamental to every society on the planet, and it's the principle of reciprocity. It's this idea yes. that people are more likely to give back to others the form of behaviour that they've been given first, and you know, the, the order is very well defined. It's called the give and take effect. Yes. It's not called the take and give effect. So one way you might want to, you know, potentially arrange for people to give you their email address is why don't you give them something first, like your email address? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, interesting. <laughs> you know, you come to the website. We're really glad. You know, we hope that you know everything that you need to know about what you're looking for. You'll find on the on on the website. But you know, in case there isn't uh, something, you know, if there's a query or there's a question that hasn't been uh, answered fully. Here's my email address where you can contact me or you can contact our organization. Oh, by the way, how about you give us yours now uh, so that we can keep that connection going. But first thing that comes to mind, you know, rather than simply ask people, you're taking information, what could you give them first? Well, that's because typically, you know, what a lot of people do is they say sign up, they're giving you your email address and we'll send you this free ebook yeah. or we'll send you, you know, this article or this video or whatever. So, yeah. but that's the take and give approach. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, and, and actually I'm, it's, it's the classic negotiation as well. If you do this for me, uh, then I'll do this in return for you. It's the kind of dangling of the carrot, if you like. And there's no doubt those kind of incentivized promotions work, but this is a slightly different one, you know, in terms of it appeals not to the, uh, you know, the economic benefit of an individual. Oh, I'm going to get something here. If I do X, right, uh, it appeals to the social aspect. Well, you know, I've been trained pretty much from the day I was born to abide by this human condition of give and take. And here's someone giving me something. So, yeah, that's a pretty cool idea. Um, okay, so the, the last question that I always like to ask in these interviews, and uh, you can interpret this however you like. What are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Okay, uh, uh, effective at influence. What, whatever you like, whatever you think. Okay, I, well, I think I'll stay if you don't mind on I would, I would my imagine. kind of safe ground. <laughs> well, the first is actually, um, you know, there's about 65 years now of documented evidence uh, of successful influence and persuasion that is, can largely be uh, codified in, in one of just three fundamental human motivations. So my first tip would be actually... Just understand and learn briefly what these motivations are. Mm-hmm. You know, people essentially, uh, when it comes to influence, their motivational footprint is pretty small. We want to make decisions in as quick and as accurate a way as possible. That's one motivation. Second is we want to make decisions that allow us to, you know, gain the approval of others, and we want to make decisions that allow us to kind of be seen in a good light. Right. Okay. And those two things are kind of slightly in conflict with each other. You know, we want to be part of the group and we want to stand out from the group. At, exactly the same time often. Um, But understanding those three things provides you with a new set of lenses when you think about, well, if I'm going to go and ask someone to help me on this project, or if I'm going to write a proposal, if I'm going to make a presentation, pitch something uh, to an investor or a potential client, you know, um, this doesn't require you to change what you're offering at all, the features, the benefits, the attributes. It just requires you to think about the context in which you present it. So that's that's one thing. Okay. Second thing is, um, to not dismiss the power of small things. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that this explosion in information has given us is access to so much great information. But the thing is, is that there is so much information available to us now. Um, so we live in an information age. We don't live in a knowledge age. 
So I think knowledge of these three universal effects and the small tweaks that can be made. So, you know, my advice would be, you know, start to write down, keep a little inventory of these little small things and how they apply to your business. You know, maybe giving your email address first before you ask for someone else's. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, um, taking an insight from those tax letter uh, studies and putting across the top of your invoices that the majority of your clients do pay on time. If they do pay on time, you know, that might be a small thing. Keep a little inventory. And the third thing, and, and actually this isn't my tip, this is something that I heard uh, my colleague Robert Cialdini say uh, many, many years ago, and he still says it, and to this day I think it's just a, a brilliant piece of advice. And it's just to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, recognize the, the personal touch, the human touch. We are social creatures, the most social of, of, of creatures at the end of the day, and um, you know, what drives our motivations are our connections, our networks with others. And so uh, anything we can do to humanize a communication, you know, put a stamp on a letter rather than putting it through the franking machine, um, you know, writing a little personalized note on, a, on an article, um, you know, uh, maybe I could be uh, uh, permitted to give an example that yeah. you gave me the other day, which yeah. is to, you know, take that envelope from the hotel room you happen to be staying in and use that to post an article, sends a message I've been thinking of you and it's unexpected and it's kind of unique because it's come from a different place. Sure. So I think those would be my three things. Well, those are, those are, those are wonderful. So uh, we're going to have show notes with links and stuff, but where is the best place for people to find out more about your work and, and buy the book, of course? Well, they can buy the book from pretty much any online bookstore. It's called The Small Big, Small Changes That Spark Big Influences. It's uh, written by myself. Uh, Robert Cialdini and my my third co-author Noah Goldstein, who's a social psychologist and business professor over at Anderson uh, in in LA. And for more information, actually, there's a great ten minute summarization of these principles uh, in animation form. You can type "science of persuasion" into uh, any search engine, we'll, and we'll, it's the we'll first the thing for sure. Uh, if we put the link up to that, and yeah. you'll find the links to our our books and our, our, our email and our, uh, our website as well. And where, so, okay, and where, do you, and where do you write blog? With, you know, where, where do people read your, your latest stuff? Uh, well, I write uh, pretty regularly uh, for the Harvard Business Review, uh, so hbr.org. Mm-hmm. You can search for Steve Martin there, and uh, you can see some of my previous work. And uh, I have a regular uh, business column with one of the in-flight magazines here in Europe, the British Airways in-flight magazine, so uh, you can... Uh, you don't have to fly British Airways now either <laughs> to uh, to read that. You can actually go online and uh, you can find the archive of those uh, articles too. Awesome. Well, Steve, thank you so much. That was great. Ari, pleasure. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.